Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this is a monthly podcast where I go in depth with one author releasing their first book. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. The first guest of 2020 is Emma Copley Eisenberg, whose fiction, essays, and reportage have appeared in numerous publications like McSweeney's, Tin House, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and more. Her debut book, The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, is an exploration into a violent crime that happened in the 80s, but also what happens to a town years later and how women are treated in small rural areas. If you want to learn more about the author after today's conversation, please check her out on her website at emmacopleyeisenberg.com or at her Twitter, which is probably one of the better author Twitter names I've ever heard, which is Frumpenberg. I'll include links to the website and Twitter in the show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Emma Copley Eisenberg about her book, The Third Rainbow Girl. Thank you, Emma, so much for taking the time to talk to me on today's podcast. How are you doing? Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm good. I'm sitting here with Gabriel the Cat, my platonic life partner, and it's, uh, you know, just a couple weeks to publication. I'm, I'm feeling a little calmer than the previous month, so it feels good. Yeah, whenever I talk to debut authors, it's usually before their book's release, just like this, and uh, there's always like that calm before the storm after like a year of nerve-wracking meetings and edits and everything. Yeah, um, and I feel like, for whatever reason, like two months was the more stressful time, but <laughs> right before, you're just like, okay, it is what it is. Yeah, and the yearbook, The Third Rainbow Girl, uh, it was subtitled A Long Life of Double Murder in Appalachia. Tell readers what the book's about um, it's more than a true crime, so tell tell readers what it's about. Yeah. Um, first of all, great job pronouncing Appalachia. Uh, <laughs> people often say Appalachia or Appalachia, and I have learned that the pronunciation is extremely complicated, and if you're from, like, northern Appalachia, you might say Appalachia or something like that, but I've heard that the standard pronunciation should be Appalachia, so great job. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Us. Yes. Uh, so my book, The Third Rainbow Girl, is yeah, I like to say, I guess it has um, sort of two main strands. And yeah, the first strand is using um, a historical crime that happened in 1980 in Southern West Virginia as a lens into um, this particular community called Pocahontas County, West Virginia. Um, and then the other strand is sort of more of a uh, cultural criticism memoir strand exploring modern Appalachia and how modern Appalachia today connects um, and is influenced by the history of that region and particularly the state of West Virginia, which is the only state that is entirely within the bounds of what we call Appalachia. Um, so there's one much more reported thread that has a lot more um, reporting and interviews, work that I did over several years, and then the other thread has more um, memoir analysis, kind of essayistic mm -hmm. tone to it. And I know it's covered in the book, but how did you find yourself in Pocahontas County? It's a little bit circuitous, but the short answer is that I went to a nice liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia, um, which had a Quaker focus and also a social justice focus, and they... Uh, so they made it a point to make available opportunities to work both internationally and domestically in social justice fields to undergrads. And so I got 
connected with a very cool um, local nonprofit in Southern West Virginia that was doing work around youth empowerment, specifically like girls empowerment, although that's gotten expanded now with changes in language. Um, and so I was first there uh, for a summer um, in my college years, and then I graduated like basically at the height of the recession in 2009. And um, so sort of having like a crisis of confidence and crisis of idealism and all these things. And basically I felt like uh, the best option to me, both like financially and ideologically at that time was to return to um, this nonprofit in West Virginia. They offered me a one-year position at first through the AmeriCorps program VISTA or Volunteers in Service to America. And then after that term expired, I stuck around and like waitressed. And by that time I was like, just like had friends and connections there. And I just wanted to stay because it was a super interesting place. So yeah, I lived there about between like a year and a half and two years. And then um, I've gone back like in many summers to do additional work with the nonprofit and also just to see friends over the years. And, and was it during that time you kind of started writing what became Third Rainbow Girl, or when when was the genesis of this book? Um, no, it was really more, um, I was getting my MFA in fiction um, at UVA in Charlottesville, and um, I had left West Virginia, and I thought, you know, this was a really like wonderful and difficult and joyful and growthful time, but I didn't necessarily expect to write a book about it. I was certainly writing when I lived in West Virginia, but I was mostly writing fiction and other stuff. Um, but when I was getting my MFA in fiction at UVA, when I was like in my mid twenties, I um, didn't ever think I was going to write nonfiction. And then I was teaching at UVA as an adjunct and the Rolling Stone Rape on Campus article came out and um, some other really difficult events happened. That was 2015, like a young black student leader was beaten on campus and it just, I felt um, like I had to participate in some way. And most of the other people in my fiction cohort were like, I am going home to like write short stories. And I was just like, ah, like I can't do that. And so I think my nonfiction brain was the desire to, to create like more reporting and knowledge that wasn't being seen um, first about Charlottesville, Virginia. And then that sort of expanded uh, started in that moment. And like the desire to participate in some kind of a conversation about um, the South Appalachia violence against women race in Appalachia in the South, like was birthed at that time. And I just kind of started like reflecting on where that impulse was coming from. And I realized it was really coming from these years I had spent in West Virginia. I did learn about the crime when I lived there and it seemed um, like important to people. It was still painful to people, but it wasn't something that I felt a huge desire to know more about until I think sometimes um, the things that obsess us work that way, right? Is like we hear about it and then it works its way down when we're ready to receive like that further information. So it took me a couple of years to fully remember that this was something I wanted to learn more about. And then once I 
started like just Googling and seeing what was available for like a mass audience on the internet when I was um, later. Yeah. In like 2015, there just was so little and there was so much clearly wrong information that that kind of exploded my passion for the project because everything that was written about it seemed to smell of these like recycled and um, like shitty, frankly, narratives about, West Virginia and so I was like there must be more to this and then five years later (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the the project did it start as the investigation into into this 1980 double murder or was it really you wanting to explore like violence against women in general and this just happened to be a good vessel for you to to use to explore it much more the former. I really didn't know why I was interested in the crime, and I really didn't know why I felt so obsessed about returning to some particular experiences I had had in West Virginia, including personal experiences, including the work that I did with teenage girls in Southern West Virginia and this group of young men that um, were my friends and then who I, I became like romantically involved with. Uh, one of them later, like this idea of sort of mashup of these modern people that I cared about that were struggling with some concrete things around sexism and class and violence and um, the narratives we tell about Appalachia. And then at the same time, my brain was learning more about these crimes that happened in the 80s. And it all just kind of seemed to like sit or rhyme with each other in these ways that I wanted to learn more about. Um, so the themes really it really started with just like images, like stuff that kept coming back to me from that time. And then ways that I would read stuff in the research and um, feel like that was rhyming with those experiences and just be like wanting to dig in more and more deeply. And we've referenced this, this crime that happened that is part of your book, I guess. And I probably will explain it in the intro, but just from your perspective, um, a brief synopsis of what this crime was and yeah just what this crime was yeah absolutely so um i don't know if you or i don't know if other readers or listeners will be familiar with um the rainbow gathering but i feel like it's kind of like how we think about sort of like burning man now was sort of what the rainbow gatherings were in the 70s um the rainbow gatherings were uh this Um, annual festival that would take place in a national public land somewhere in America. Um, It was started in the early 70s as kind of like a way to keep the energy and community focus and um, environmental celebration aspect of the hippie movement going. And um, it's also become complicated over the years because uh, they usually take place in proximity to like extremely small towns and have tend to have effects on um, rural communities because sometimes as many as like 15 or 20,000 people coming to um, a very rural area from all over the country. So that's what happened in this case. It was um, in 1980, the Rainbow Gathering was held in Southern West Virginia, um, right up near where um, I was living later and and where the book is set. And essentially, um, yeah, people came from all over the country there was um, some pushback inside Pocahontas County and neighboring counties in West Virginia that's saying like, 
by our 15,000 people coming to our area. They didn't even like tell us really, or like send us a letter. They were just like, we're coming. And uh, so there was kind of this mood of like a little bit of pushback, a little bit of fear. Um, and then two women, um, one of whom uh, is from New York state who was kind of young, 19 traveling, um, working in a thrift store in Tucson, Arizona, and the other was a, um, a bit older. She was like a, a home health aide or nurse, um, Vicki Durian. The first one's name is Nancy Sanamero. They were just like coming to the Rainbow Festival. Um, they were friends, and they were also traveling with a third friend um, named Liz. And they just were like young, going on an adventure like you would go to a concert or Burning Man or something. And so they hitchhiked across um, America from Arizona to West Virginia. Um, Liz parted way, parted ways with them at the last sort of moment the night before she was just kind of like, I don't have a good feeling about this. I'm going to actually like go now. And she split off from the other two and the others two, Vicki, um, and Nancy, uh, we don't really know exactly what happened to them. Um, they were found, uh, the following day in a clearing in Pocahontas County, very close to where I would later live. Um, and they were shot like multiple times at close range. And so there was the sense for a while that maybe these two women were murdered somewhat like ideologically based around people's fear or anxiety about all these outsiders coming in for the rainbow murders. And then um, it's sort of spelled out in the beginning of the book. I'm not really one for like spoilers. I had Ann Beatty, um, the writer in my was my professor in grad school and she was kind of like she saw a very early draft of this when it was actually written as fiction and she was like you know it's actually like way better to put the murder up front and that so that doesn't subsume the whole story and the story can sort of lift off and be more than that so there isn't really any spoilers but um basically this case uh became this extremely complicated and extended difficult um investigation and almost like hunt through the community for who murdered these women. Um, and uh, it was assumed at the time that the person who had killed them was almost certainly a local person because they were found in such an isolated place. And because there was all this like storytelling about um, that local people were mad and stuff. Um, so yeah, I basically examine the ways that that investigation began as like, um, I think a very, um, you know, rigorous, like attempt to bring people to justice, but it actually expanded into like a 20 year saga in which a lot of local guys, they were all men, nine guys were, um, uh, investigated, incarcerated for various periods of time. Um, and then one of them was convicted for their murders, uh, in 1993. And then, you know, you read the book, but there's a, a twist there in the sense that um, there's another theory that uh, about someone from outside who may actually have killed the women instead, and just kind of competing stories of someone from our community must have killed these women because we're bad and we've been, um, you know, portrayed in the media as bad and violent for a long time, versus um, another theory of a of an outsider that actually had like more means and opportunity. So it's a little bit of a saga, but I hope that um, 
it has, it's complicated and I hope that we were able to manage um, all the information with what the information means and suggests about these larger themes. Yeah, and what I really appreciate about your book was it starts with, uh, like, these things are true, and it just spells out everything you spelled out um, to, I, I felt it let me know as a reader that this is, it, it subverted my expectations of what a true crime is, and then I then I kind of let go of that, oh, this is just going to be, like, serial or whatever, like, a, a true yeah. crime, and it's going to be about more than that, and which it is, obviously. When, um... Yeah. As you, yeah, and like, and that's what I mean. I, like I said before, we started recording officially. Like this book, I really wanted you to be the first podcast guest of the year because it does so much of what I love in writing right now, where you look at everything from like a kaleidoscopic view. Um, I guess let's go back to when you kind of went back to Pocahontas County and, or the, for the first time. When did when did you first hear about this murder? Like, how was it brought up to you? It was brought up to me when I was still living in the county. I was part of a writing group. Mm. <laughs> Classic. Like, it, it kind of, like, when you look back at these things that, like, end up, like, being these pivotal moments in your path, I feel like it all kind of, like, makes sense. But mm. I'm like, oh, God damn it. It was at a writing group. Um, <laughs> and uh, as I, like, chat about a little bit in the book, Pocahontas mm. County is a really rich and interesting place and it has a long history of, of actually of outsiders coming in for a long time and mostly for ideological reasons including a big back to the land sort mm-hmm, of element mm-hmm. so I was, I was in this writing group with a few basically older folks like boomer generation mm-hmm. folks um many of whom were um sort of back to the lander types that had stuck around and and become embedded in the community and, and established relationships and stuff and they were also cool and great writers and uh, one of them was um, a you know a friend an older guy who was who's a artist and and um, builder and also writes uh, poetry a bit and he shared a poem about uh, finding these women finding Vicky Darian mm-hmm. and Nancy Santomero in the woods and he did he was the one who found them and he was a young guy in the 80s um, you know very much new to the area he had built um like a lean-to cabin in the woods and was just getting to know his neighbors and getting to know the area and he you know drove home and found these women in his extremely isolated yard basically clearing and it was clearly still so um vivid and painful for him and it was clearly something that everyone else in the room knew about and um and it just I think even it's so right that it was a, a writing group too, because I think it, it again, it wasn't like a news report. It wasn't a, um, like, um, you know, a, a speech about the importance of X, Y, or Z thing. It, it was a poem and, and it just really like hammered home to me that there was something about this event that felt bigger than the facts of it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, um, and also that he was so connected to my contemporary life. Like he was the dad of a guy I was like friends with and seeing all the time. Um, just made me feel like all these links were sort of like playing out in real life. So then when you go back, when you like start writing in 2015, how did you approach this considering there was so much shitty information, like you said, out there about the case and about the murders? 
what I guess yeah what was your first steps into writing about writing this book totally I've taught a couple of classes now about um researching for long narratives and I really love this um Margot Livesey has this really great um essay Curiosity's Cats in her craft book The Hidden Machinery and she says you know it took me a long time to realize that if you're told, you know, write what you know, that research, and to which I would add reporting, can help you know more. And um, I think that I am not a reporter by training, by dream. I never wanted to be a journalist, really. I never wanted to be a reporter. But I, I did get um, some good experience working at some small papers, both in Philadelphia and in Charlottesville. And I did do, um, ultimately, a semester <laughs> I did not finish the degree um, in graduate school uh, at, for journalism. And I, so I um, had some of the skills to just do the, the basics of reporting and fact checking. And so essentially, I just thought, like, if I can throw away everything that exists, which is clearly wrong, like, what can I learn that's not here already? Like, what, and what can I find that must exist but is not on the internet? Like, that's, um, I think that's a function of the age of the case, but I also do think it's a function of the rurality and the Appalachian setting of this case that there's a lot of knowledge and information that is just not on the internet and is just never will be and only lives in people's brains and um, experiences. So I definitely like also tried to like follow that um, sort of adage of like, don't read about the period, like read in the period. So I thought it was most important to go and talk to people and read um, the newspaper uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. The Pocahontas Times is a really cool newspaper that um, is you know, published weekly still. Uh, it's a very vibrant small town paper that is based out of the county seat of Pocahontas County, which is Marlinton, West Virginia. And um, they have, you know, every issue of the book on this time times going back till uh the 50s basically so I sat there for a long time and I did have the impulse whether you know right or wrong to read the whole trial transcript that was um the case that was prosecuted against this one local farmer his name was Jacob Beard who they eventually did convict for these crimes um in 1993 so I, I thought that if I could get access to all of that those documents um and if I could get access to any people that were still living who had participated in uh, this case, then that would be so much better than reading pieces that were published. Most of them were published like 10 to 12 years after the fact of the events, which is never a good idea, even though that's sort of what I'm doing um, as well. So like I acknowledge that anytime you're writing um, with a significant like gap of years after the fact, it's always extremely hard. Um, and I'm always extremely suspicious. So yeah. Alive and willing to talk with me. Um, the prosecutor, Walt Whiteford, who passed away like a few weeks after I met with him, was very spooky. Was super helpful. Um, was able to get like limited access to uh, Robert Alkire, the investigator, and then um, family members and people that had been involved with the case as much as possible. And yeah, just a ton of. Um, I sat yeah for about like 12 days, I think. I went every day to the county courthouse where um, the case was prosecuted. And um, 
I have like a tiny baby arm that got cut off of the book about like the nature of <laughs> trial transcripts, but in essence, like you can't take them home with you and you can't buy them unless they're really rich. So sitting there um, every day was also in fact very instructive just to kind of like get a sense of who came into the county courthouse and clerk's office and who were, what were the lawyers like and what did they look like and what did they dress like? And I think that very slow process um, also, someone fairly new to reporting was actually like helpful mm-hmm. in the long run. And and at one what point? This, this is definitely a dumb question, but what point did you realize that the the stories out there on the internet were bad? Did you like know that just based on before your reporting, or did you come into that that realization as you started reporting on the case? Um. I think it was pretty immediate. Like when I, I just remember like uh, I was living in this like weird apartment in Charlottesville that had been like an antebellum like house that definitely had slaves that worked there. It was such a creepy, creepy house that they'd since split into apartments. And um, I did a lot of like, I w- at first I would only allow myself to Google and read stuff about this case, like when I was in my car, <laughs> like when I would be like coming home from an MFA reading or commitment, but before I went inside and like did the dishes, I was like, all right, I'm going to steal this like 10 minutes to think about this nonfiction book project, which will never be, but let's see. And reading the articles, there was one extremely long article that was written after the fact by Bill Jensen, who Fun fact is now one of the writers who finished Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, he was once a small town weekly reporter for a, the paper in um, Huntington, near Huntington, New York, Long Island, where one of the victims was from. And his article was probably the best available. Um, but even so, some of the like narrative framing and the way it talked about local people just seemed so um, recycled, like so easy and recycled and like not true to the experience I'd had of people there that I just felt like there must be something more. Um, and I think I, I did really, I think that when the book really became real to me um, was when I learned about Liz, um, this third woman who had been with uh, these these two victims, but not actually died. Like she had, had she had traveled with them and then decided to leave and and survived and she was mentioned in Bill Jensen's article and I just thought like whoa like she's got to be she's got to know something and she's got to be um so changed by this experience that like almost happened to her but didn't uh and so I did get in touch with her like very early on in the process I think I like read everything that was available on the internet which was not much and bad like we said and then I basically found her and requested her um, trial uh, testimony um, like really early on over the phone and the courthouse did send some of that to me and, and talking with Liz like made me feel like, wow, there's really something else here um, because even though she had not much experience in Pocahontas County, her story of like that time and traveling and the way that um, the everything had gone down in terms of the way that the stories kind of got hardened into like bad guys killed like hippie women. I was just like, this isn't right. And she was really helpful in articulating why not. 
And I guess I just want to circle back. I just remembered you mentioned that your MFA advisor, professor, and Beatty, you, this was a work of fiction at one point instead of being nonfiction. Yeah. Was that your original intention then, to research this and fictionalize it? Um, I don't know that I ever had as organized a thought as an intention at that point, but I fiction was really all I knew um, how to write, and I did write a short story called The Third Rainbow Girl, which is what Ann Beatty and my um, UVA MFA colleagues saw a long time ago, and that story was helpful, I think, in my process, and it did incorporate some of the true things that um, Liz uh, had told me, but it also um, filled in a lot of gaps with my own imagination and projections and fears and things that had happened to me and et cetera, et cetera. And I think at some point I just realized like, I am not from Appalachia. I'm not from this place. Like I can't actually fill in true things with my imagination. Like I don't, that's not really like good enough if that makes sense. And it's not going to be, um, it's not really going to like do justice to the complexity of what happened in this particular case. So I think just that knowing that failure, like knowing that, um, and I, I kind of had like a crisis of confidence around fiction, to be honest. I was just like, well, if fiction relies on these narratives and narrative arcs and ideas of change and transformation and certain kinds of characters and what certain kinds of characters would do, like, how can I write this as fiction if I don't believe in those narratives anymore? I really thought like all fiction was broken for a time. I like want to do this whole thing about that. So I think it really was a, um, a, learning how to report was like a drug in the sense that you could really make more knowledge and you could um, find out uh, details and, and um, twists that I never would have created in my own brain that felt so true. And that would complicate the story every time. Like every time I thought like, I know what this story is, I would talk to someone else and they would tell me something that completely undermined the like, sort of nice little story I had been creating. And eventually that began to feel like the point of the book, that there really was um, no way to cram um, everything into a story, that it had to be fractured and messy and felt like nonfiction was the best way to like make something fractured and messy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then after, after that shift to deciding to write nonfiction, when did your life story become a part of The Third Rainbow Girl? Yeah, I struggled with that a lot. Um, I'd definitely written an essay um, exploring the idea of like national service and the quote unquote service I did in West Virginia and how that morphed into something else and something much more complicated. Um, I'd written, done some of that writing and was sort of exploring like essays and reading essays while I was in my MFA program. But I thought I was writing two separate things for a long time. I thought I was writing like a long essay um, sort of about this time and this experience. And then I thought I was writing like a magazine piece or something um, exploring this crime. And then was, I, eventually I just like looked at the two of them and I was like, fuck, like I'm writing a book and they both have to be in it. And it, it just felt like to write only the story of the crime didn't encapsulate like the whole picture and to, and certainly to write only about me was not 
necessary or like really that interesting but the actually the interesting stuff came from like the collision of those two pieces particularly around this idea of like Appalachia now like I didn't want there's so many books that treat Appalachia or West Virginia as this like place of the past like something happened and now it's over and I really didn't want to do that like there's um so much like really cool activism and um intellectual work and art that's being produced in Appalachia and specifically in West Virginia and southern West Virginia right now um in some ways work that I think is gonna really like impact the whole nation and lead um into this next moment whatever that holds for us after 2020 and um I just don't feel like I could write a book that was just um about a crime and I think people are rightly sensitive to books that um, and media in general that focuses on like negative aspects or, or damage or violence or things that have happened in Appalachia that are quote unquote bad. And I wanted to figure out a way to put something that was true that seemed important to document and memorialize up against um, more complicated ideas of like what we can learn from that and what it shows us about ourselves and our country. And um, it just felt like those two pieces had to live together. There was a lot that got cut. The parts about um, me shrunk a great deal, which I think was the right decision. And um, we struggled a lot about where to put them. I originally wanted to have the crime and everything about the the county be the first three quarters of the book and then just kind of backload like my own experience and here's what's happening now. But my editor was like, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) So um, (laughs) we didn't do that. Uh, but yeah, there's five parts to the book plus a substantial prologue and two of them, the shorter ones are about, I'm sorry, there's seven parts, yikes, and five parts of them are about the case and two of them are about me. Other than, yeah, I guess, what did you learn about yourself in Appalachia, this is very broad, but during this time, I know a lot of it's put into the book, but if you could summarize it, what, what did what did you take away from this project? Mm. Oh, so much. Um, A whole book's worth. Exactly. But no, um, for the purposes of this, I think I really, really took away um, the idea of contradiction, that contradictions live in all of us in these really serious ways. And that doesn't mean that we're broken. And that doesn't mean that we can't ever be like our full selves, but it means that, um, you know, talking to people who are both queer and trans and live in West Virginia and that those parts of themselves feel at odds all the time and that that's okay. And they get to make lots of different choices about what those contradictions look like. Or I think in terms of the, the crime itself, like I really came in thinking like, I'm a like feminist and advocate for women and all this stuff. And then, the more I read about the men who had been impacted and the community members, most of whom were men who had been negatively impacted by the investigation into this crime itself, I was like, this is really messed up. And the ways that poor men are incarcerated essentially because of cash bail system, the same system that affects um, poor, mostly men of color uh, that we've been seeing more stories come out about recently impacts poor white people, poor white dudes mostly. And that that those two truths that like, you know, these two women are killed and that's messed up. And also that in the service of bringing whoever 
killed them to justice. A lot of people's lives were really shattered in ways that is not fair and is really about capitalism and class and um, stereotypes of Appalachia. Like, that's also not okay. And that those two things, like, just need to live in equal um, not okayness, like, side by side until the end of time. Like, I think that we're, we're sort of forced to choose all the time um, between our with whom is like your lot cast or where does your value lie? And I'm just like, I don't, I'm not going to choose between those two things. So like I have these little pins made up, this like lovely um, artist made these little pins for me for the book that just say both. And, you know, and I think uh, I plan to sort of like, you know, give those as little presents to people who come and hang out with me on the book tour and just kind of like uh, bringing that, again into the world it's the truth that we know but like we have to keep learning all the time i think so you also run blue stoop in philadelphia i guess do you want to just talk about what blue stoop is and how it came to be for sure yeah um philadelphia is an adopted city of mine i'm also not from here but i did um i have been living in and are in proximity to Philly since 2005 basically um and I feel like it's a really rich and cool and exciting city especially to be living in right now and also it's a really rich um city for writers particularly poetry there's a really big poetry sort of um like descendant of punk DIY poetry scene here uh, it's also a majority-minority city. There's a lot of um, cool, socially engaged activist work going on at the intersection of literary world and um, uh, social justice world, for lack of, a, lack of a better word, here in Philly. But um, I did feel that, just from my perspective of having like moved to Philly like basically three times, like I moved to Philly sort of, um, after right after college for like a minute and then again um after West Virginia I lived here for about two years um just like working in a coffee shop and trying to be a writer and then I returned again in 2015 and it seemed like each time um though it was such an amazing city that had such amazing writers there was a lot of uh struggle I think to find like a cohesive literary community and also to get skills to become a better writer if you were wanting that. Um, I certainly wanted that like when I moved um, in 2012 and was like really looking for a way to have a writing group or um, really push my skills further. And it was just kind of like hard to find, especially for prose. It seemed like there's a lot more opportunities for, um, for poets, but uh, yeah. So essentially in 2018, um, you, my friend Josh Demery, who's a delight, who um, is no longer on like the Blue Soup Central team because he's working on other projects, including trying to bring back a, a book festival to Philly for 2021. So stay tuned for that. Um, he and I and uh, a couple other folks essentially just sent out a big mass email and just said like, hey, we're thinking about exploring the possibility of a community literary center, something that would be not affiliated with a university um, because the University of Pennsylvania is here. Temple um, has an MSA program. Those are all wonderful, but you do have to be, you know, in school or, you know, paying for that degree to really have access to all the programs. Um, so we were like, you know, would something that 
is a community-based literary center that's really just advocating for writers, connecting writers to resources, um, and potentially offering classes. Is that something that would be of interest to you? And we had a big meeting of about 60 folks, and um, people had really good feedback. You know, we basically asked, like, what do you love about the Philly literary community, and what do you need? And um, people love that Philly is a much less pretentious city, that it's a um, egalitarian city, that you can be in a room with, like, Philly Poet Laureate and just like your neighbor and everyone's welcome. Um, but yeah, I did hear a lot of demand for like space. We need a place to hang out. We need a place to have readings that's not in a third floor walk up, um, you know, or is not in a particular like in-group space, like only for um, older writers, or only for queer writers, or only in this neighborhood that feels safe to some people, but not other people, yada, yada. So um we started to pursue the idea of developing that. Uh, and I, we didn't invent this model. Certainly like there's many amazing centers around the country. The loft in Minneapolis is probably really like the OD and then places like Lighthouse um, in Denver and the Porch in Tennessee and even Tony Tulatamuti's um, workshop Crit in New York. All of those folks gave us really good advice. And um, yeah, so we just started saying that we were um, a, a resource and we started creating a digital space online and then offering classes as a way to kind of fund ourselves and keep the lights on. Um, so we've existed since May 2018. Um, we're now a 501c3 sponsored org. And yeah, the mission is really to um, foster literary life in Philly, to connect writers to the resources they need so that they can stay in Philly and thrive and not have to move to places like New York or LA, and also um, to encourage links between uh, Philly and the publishing industry, because like you were saying about Denver, Philly gets skipped all the time on people's book tours. I think because we're seen as an extension of New York or something, but I'm kind of like, this awesome, people will come out for your event, and it's only a super easy train ride from New York. Like, I'm not sure why publishers aren't knocking on our door and um, we're starting to get a lot more. So we have really exciting events um, coming up this spring and we've had some really amazing writers already come through like Alexander Chi and Edmay Wang and um, Jakira Diaz, Tommy Pico. Uh, lots of great folks have sort of taken a chance on us in the beginning. And I think if we get really good turnout and people really want to show up to the events that, um, bring it's been really fun just been a really fun space uh mm -hmm. yeah and then before i let you go i just wanted to get any books you've read recently uh, they don't have to be debuts but if they are great anything you've read that's come out in 2019 or coming out in 2020 that really really um you fell in love with uh yeah i you know like every now and again you read something where you just want to like proselytize about it and go like shove it into everyone's hands and I got a chance to check out early um, Kathy Park Hong's book coming out called Minor Feelings. Um, it's coming out with One World. It's, it's in that mode of um, nonfiction that could be sort of an essay collection, could be um, scholarship, it's, but really is anchored in like um, really smart, precise uh, first person nonfiction writing. And it's really, it's the subtitle is An Asian American Reckoning. And it's really like, about um, the ways that Asian Americans are not allowed like complex creative inner lives often and and the way that you know her work and 
her relationships with other like cool weird Asian folks have like really shaped her her life and her work um I don't know if she counts as a debut since she does have a several poetry collections I think one of them is called dance dance revolution and it's also really great um she's coming to Philly in March which I'm really excited about and then um my friend Rachel Monroe wrote this book Savage Appetites which just like I also read in a like fugue just like in a day and a half when I was at the Malay colony and it's um it came out in the fall like September 2019 um and it's uh essentially like the book that I wanted to read for a long time about the ways that um like why it's not just like why are we so obsessed with true crime it's more like how does our interest in these dark spaces like inform the world that we're in now it's she calls it meta true crime and it's really divided into four sections about these tropes that we see recycled over and over again in quote crime stories it's like the victim the detective um the uh ooh, what she does an amazing exploration of this woman who made these tiny walnut um, dioramas of crime scenes and basically invented the modern uh, forensic analysis um, field. Like it's, it's sort of about the, like how did we get here? It's like a state of our interest in um, noir and true crime, which is really, really good. And also, I would say just a plug for my um, exciting new book that's on my nightstand is uh, Temporary by Hilary Leichter, um, which is a like surreal, very funny um, exploration of like living under late stage capitalism. It's like about this woman who's a temp and she goes like more and more sort of bonkers in a great way. Like she becomes a ghost. She interacts with ghosts. It's sort of this idea of like when you are given no... Um, ability to be like a full-time member of the workforce under capitalism like what happens to your brain and it's really wonderful and, and coming out in um uh march from yeah. coffee house slash emily book so look out for that i am extremely excited about that book i either yeah have i either got it recently or i've just re-emailed uh, her publicist being like i need it as soon as possible yeah that doesn't really work all the time but i try to annoy as many people as i can um, oh, sure. So I'm I'll really pass excited. That yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I you. I know it's a busy time, and I know you say you're you, it's kind of chilled out for you right before publication, but I know it still could be stressful. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm so excited about um, the beautiful and all the work you're doing, and <laughs> I just think yeah, it's really needed. Um, yeah, like because absolutely, like I think especially I was gonna say in Philly, like there's one there's like the free library of Philadelphia which is wonderful and books like big big people but mm -hmm. especially for debut writers I feel like there's it's a tough position sometimes um to find ways to like connect with readers um if you're not you're not like at the top top yet but there's people that I think are hungry for what you're up to so I appreciate what you're doing Thank you again to Emma Copley Eisenberg for discussing her book The Third Rainbow Girl with me on Debutiful the podcast a reminder, if you like what you heard here, check out daybeautiful.net. In 2019, the website featured over 40 author interviews, and 2020 will continue that trend in addition to this monthly podcast. 
Check us out at Day Beautiful on all social medias. You can also find Emma Copley Eisenberg at her website, emmacopleyeisenberg.com, and her Twitter account, Frumpenberg. All these links will be in the show notes. Thanks again to my friends Panic Baby for letting me use their song, Don't. Check them out at don'tpanicbaby.com. Hope you all have a good one. Thanks.